Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Package Tourist, hosted by yours truly, The Package Tourist, the magical mystery tour called Life, Matthew DBIs. Tonight's guest is novelist Jeff Salter, who goes by the name of J.L. Salter at Amazon. Jeff lives in Kentucky and worked for nearly 30 years as a librarian. He was also a decorated veteran of the Air Force. In 2012, he published his first book, The Overnighter's Secrets, and since then he has blessed his readers with more works like The Ghostess and Mr. Muir and the Rose Romer Time Traveler books, Cowboy Out of Time and Cowboy Joins the Fight. Jeff, welcome to the show. It's an honor and privilege to have you here. I'd like to start off by asking you, please tell our listeners about your very first book, The Overnighter's Secrets. I'm happy to. That was a special book for me. It was the seventh book that I'd actually finished, um, and it, but it was the first to be published. So it, it means a lot to me from that standpoint. But the, the backstory on this, this novel was that I have a friend who used to live in California. And when he was there, he would trade. Um, he had, had some dumpster diver friends of his. He didn't do it himself, but he had friends. And they would come by after they had gone through dumpsters. And this was in the area of Long Beach, California, near Hollywood. And they would uh, show him the stuff that they'd gotten, and sometimes he would buy stuff, sometimes he would trade with them. Well, for 16 years, he had kept this stuff in a small suitcase, which is an overnighter, and he hadn't shown it to anybody but his, his wife. And so he got to talking with me one day, and he started showing me the stuff out of his place. We had it all spread out over the back of his, the bed of his uh, pickup truck. And I started noticing that there was a, there was a common thread it was stuff like handbills, programs, and promotional stills from silent movies, and vaudeville, clippings about vaudeville, and stuff. This is one person's stuff in here, mostly. And there was other stuff mixed in. But it, it tur- we did some research on it and found out that Rosette Thorne, who was later a silent movie star, uh, actress rather, with, uh, with one of the earliest companies that Charlie Chaplin was in in 1916. But Rosette Thorne was the previous owner of a lot of these materials. And finding the materials like we did and going over them just led, I, I just had to find out that I had to build a novel around the discovery and the research that went into these materials. And, I, and that's why Overnighter's Secrets are special to me. Now, you say this was your seventh manuscript. Now, what happened with the previous six? Were they just rejected by publishing firms, or were they incomplete? Can you elaborate on that? Uh, most of the previous six have been since have since been published. Uh, the very first novel that I wrote has not been. Uh, it just it's one of those that you, you you hear about people throwing under the bed and leaving under the bed in a box. You know that that's pretty much what this novel is going to going to stay. But the other, the other five have been, uh, I, I was able to revise those and submit them, and they later were all published. Um, but prior to that, I had uh, submitted a lot of stories, a lot of my novels to contests and other places like that, and in the effort to try to get a, an agent, a literary agent, mm. and I was unsuccessful in that. Okay. Now, <clears throat> I was fascinated. You did a, you've done a duet, a very fascinating duet. Uh, the Rose Romer Time Traveler books, Cowboy Out of Time and Cowboy Joins the Fight. Now, it, of course, both things deal with time travel. Now, what led you to explore that fascinating realm of fiction? Well, as you say, it is fascinating. I, I've always loved science fiction. 
but I was never one of those guys that was just really into the space travel part of it. You know, I didn't really care about rocket ships and what they would find on Mars. That, that didn't interest me all that much. But I was always fascinated by time travel, uh, whether you, the, the time traveler went forward in time to see what was going to happen or went backwards in time to see if they could, you know, tweak it somehow and, and prevent some terrible thing from taking place. And when I saw the movie, The Time Machine, which came out about 1960, 61, sometime in there, um, oh, I was just blown away by the notion that this Wells character could sit in this machine and dial in any date that he wanted, forward or backward, and zoom to that, to that time. But it was the same place on the planet, but a different time. And I was just blown away by that. Now, uh, I'm kind of curious, how does the character, you're, you're dealing with a 19th century cowboy, how is he able to go forwards in time? Is it like a weird warp of nature? It's not a machine. Is it like a weird warp of nature, some type of natural phenomenon? Can you elaborate on yeah. that or no? It's, yeah, it's close, it's close to a natural phenomenon, but it involves the Native American uh, heritage that he had. He, what he, he has some Native American blood through his mother's side, but he's transplanted from, from Texas to someplace in Mississippi where there had been a, a big battle by a, uh, a famous chieftain, and I'm, I'm drawing a blank on his name right now, but, but this, this part is historically accurate. Um, but where I varied from that is that this guy, well, in real life, these, these Native Americans thought there was certain power associated with some of their, uh, I think it's spiritually, um, uh, not to say visit, but um, they could spiritually connect with ancestors. And they, they had a lot of ideas about um, connections with their, their previous generations. And so I thought, well, why not have a special spot in this place where that this big battle had taken place in this in the Mississippi Territory, that this guy falls asleep in this cowboy from the 1885, he falls asleep in it and he wakes up a hundred years later. <laughs> wow, so that would be pretty cool because the Mississippi Territory had changed quite a bit yeah. in, in that hundred years, and the part that he was in later became the state of Alabama. Yeah. Uh, could you be talking about Horseshoe Bend, that famous battle with Andrew Jackson and the Creek Indians? Is that what you're referring to, the Battle of Horseshoe Bend? Well, it is the Creek Indians. Uh, of course, there was there were several tribes that were in that Mississippi Territory, including uh, Cherokee and, and others, but some people call, include them in the Creek Nation, and some people consider that different. And I'm not an expert in that, by the way. Yeah. But yet, I do believe that that is the battle that I'm talking about. And I can't remember the name of the chief, but he was he was re reputed to have um, just special powers that that at least his his colleagues believed in, if not the, the white men that were fighting. Yeah, I, I had a curious, Mr. Salter. Do you have any Native American ancestry by any chance? Yes, I do. Um, through my father's side, we have uh, blood from Seminole Indians, and we also have blood from Choctaw Indians. Oh. And really sure about the the balance and the mixture but my father always told us when we were growing up that his mother my grandmother was the granddaughter of an indian chief and i thought well you know <laughs> you know sometimes sometimes family stories like that have just a little bit of truth and a lot of elaboration 
and we were never able to pin much down. But one of my first cousins claims that she has nailed it down that we are uh, descendants, part, very diluted descendants of the Seminole Indian chief, Osceola. Mm. Because my grandmother's name, my maiden name was Whitehead, and there was a Whitehead uh, that married into the line of, of Osceola. Um, yeah. So, but, I, you know, we couldn't track it down. We couldn't prove it. Uh, at, at least she couldn't prove it. To, but it sure, it sure makes a great story. <laughs> now, you've written some comedy books as well. Can you tell our listeners about your comedic works? Yeah, uh, and that's really, to me, it's kind of an interesting thing because I'm absolutely terrible at telling jokes. Uh, my friends who, who are great at telling jokes, my father-in-law is great at that. I cannot tell a joke from save my life, but I'm told that I can write a pretty funny scene. <laughs> so one of the things I do on an almost daily basis on Facebook is I'll, I'll take actual things that happen and I'll, I'll retell them. Sometimes I embellish them just a little bit. Sometimes it's just straight exactly what happened, and it's the way I tell it and the order in which you reveal the, the components that makes it funny um, or, or the reaction of who it happened to, which usually is me. Um, and that's just for the entertainment, entertainment of my friends and contacts. But in my novels, I find typically that my characters end up in interesting situations, and I enjoy telling those in a humorous way. Jeff, in terms of genres, where would you place your books? Well, um, that's one of the questions that I'm sure you ask most of your your uh, visitors, your guests, and it's one that I've been asked a lot, and, and I, I always have to give a reply that probably sounds vague, but I really think it's accurate. I write what um, what is called a blended or a hybrid type of a story, and what I mean by that is that it, it's not straight romance or straight humor or straight action but it's a blend of all three of those. Mm. But in addition to those, that group of, of stories that I've written, novels, excuse me, I've also written screwball comedy uh, novels. <laughs> I've written suspense. I've written supernatural things like the two you mentioned and also the, the ghost story that, I, um, that you uh, asked me about in one of the questions. And I've also had some seasonal stories that, that are very much centered on Christmas or, or Halloween. Now, you're, we have a mutual friend of ours, Sharon Connell, who told me about you. You're a friend of ours. Are your book are your books part of Christian literature or no? No, no, they're not. Uh, and I've read several of hers, and, and and I, if hers are typical of Christian fiction, then mine would definitely not be. But uh, because my characters, they don't stop to pray about things, and they don't the the plots that they that she writes about. Uh, they contemplate spiritual issues, and, and I, don't, I, don't, I don't veer in that direction. What I do write is what I call clean fiction. Yeah. So there's no cussing, there's no sex, and there's no killing in that. Okay. And part of the reason for that was because my first publisher absolutely insisted that her all of her books be clean. Now, my attitude at that point, which I, I thought was a very good way to go, I wanted to publish stories that I would not be embarrassed to show to my pastor's wife, ah. and I sort of, I sort of made that uh, the ground, the, the foundation. Now that that said, with other publishers, I have some titles that that do have a more relaxed view of those issues, and and some of there there is a case, an occasional word that some people wouldn't like, and is 
um, you know, a little bit of, of extramarital activity, I guess you could say. In other words, people who are not married who are obviously hooking up. Um, and that even was not allowed by the first publisher. Just, you know, yeah. even if you didn't describe how they were hooking up, and you weren't allowed to even have characters that were hooking up if you follow them. Okay. So, now, my two most recent manuscripts, which have not come out yet, they actually are with a different publisher that specializes in military uh, action stories. Ooh. Now, these, have, uh, they're pretty gritty, um, and there's there's a body count of these. Ooh, okay. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, how autobiographical are your works? Because some novelists do like to put some of them, a, a part of their life experiences into their characters. How how is it with you? How much of your own life experiences do you put into your characters when you write? Well, you know, I saw an interesting quote by by the famous author, what her name was now, but she said, whenever you write a biography, people assume that it's fictional. And whenever you write fiction, they assume it's autobiographical. <laughs> and I thought, you know, that, that, that's yeah. pretty well covered. There's probably a lot of my own experiences that show up in my fiction. Some of it's on purpose, but I think some of it's probably just unconscious. But one of the most comprehensive, excuse me, comprehensive examples is the one we talked about at the top of this interview, which is the Overnight of Secrets. Which, I, or I took nearly everything that my buddy and I actually did, and discovered, and researched, and I just wove a novel around it. Okay. So. When I was looking up your background, you know, preparing for this interview, I saw in a previous interview you gave that you like to write books that deal with what if scenarios. Okay, what led you to explore that that concept? Well, first of all, it's, uh, when I was a kid growing up, um, I think I'm probably several years older than you, and, and you, you probably know these shows, but maybe you didn't see them when they were first run. Do uh, you remember Twilight Zone, Outer Limits, Night Gallery, those shows? I was much too young. I was just a baby. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Well, I grew up on those and cut my teeth on those, and many of those stories, uh, especially with the Rod Serling versions of scripts, really, were what-if scenarios. But in an everyday context, I just tend to be a really curious individual. I'm, I'm a people watcher. I, I can't help. I'll look at someone who's kind of suspicious looking, and he's he hops in his truck, and he's carrying a trailer. And I'm thinking, what the fuck's that guy got in that trailer? <laughs> I mean, mm. No, no, I'm business. But I'm thinking, boy, depending upon what you decide you've got in that trailer, you could have you could make a story about this. And then I'll look at someone who's, Maybe really a distressed-looking woman, and I'll think to myself, "What happens if you know? What does she find when she finally gets home? You know, I yeah. it's not going to be all that pleasant." So, what ifs are just really uh, fascinating. Now, you said you you served a long time in the Air Force, a decorated veteran. When did you serve from in the Air Force, Mr. Jeff? I went in in January of 1971, and I got an early out in uh, May of 74. Did you ever, I mean, did you go to like Nam or anything like that? No, and I was glad that I did. I, I was, frankly, I was scared to death. Uh, when I, I knew I would be drafted because I had a low number at the very first lottery in 1969. Wow. So there was no question about me being called up. So I shopped around with recruiters, and I found out that the Air Force offered a little bit more ability to uh, select a career field. 
but also I figured if I was in the Air Force, I definitely would not be a combat soldier. And that's that's good. Everybody everybody who was being drafted practically was being thrown into uniform and sent over there as combat uh, infantry, and I, I did not want that. So anyway, I, after basic training, I was sent direct duty to my first permanent station, and I wound up doing the same work I had done as a civilian. I was uh, working on the, the base newspapers. Wow. What, some, where were some of the bases you served, Jeff? The most interesting of the bases I went, I was at four different bases. The most interesting was in Greenland, wow. in the northwest corner of Greenland, up inside the Arctic Circle, and it was the little base called Thule Air Base. Jeez. And Thule is a, uh, uh, is a, I can't remember now what language it's in, but it, it, what is translated is the top of the world. Jeez. So oh, my goodness. It was quite literally the top of the world. You couldn't get much further north than us, except by the Canadian, um, uh, Royal Canadian Air Force. They had a, a station further north than us. Wow. Jeez. Where else did you serve, if you don't mind me asking? Don't mind a bit. I started out, of course, in Lackland uh, Air Force Base in San Antonio. From there, I was first assigned to Cannon Air Force Base in New Mexico. That was a tactical air command base. And from there, I went to Greenland. And then from, from Greenland, came back to California, to Sacramento, to McClellan Air Force Base. And there, I was with the Air Force Logistics Command. And then after that, I was in the Air Force Reserve in, uh, in Keesler Air Force Base in Biloxi, Mississippi. Wow. Yeah. Is there a subject you haven't dealt with yet when you're in your writing? Is there, is there a subject you haven't dealt with yet that yet down the road you would, you would like to explore in future works? Well, I, I pondered that quite a bit uh, when, when you sent me those questions about an hour ago. And I don't have anything specific in mind, but on the other hand, I have quite literally over a hundred different story ideas that are some of which are just concepts and some of which are, are pretty fully developed. And I've got a handful of those that I've got 25, 30,000 words already. Mm-hmm. And so my main thing is I would like to find the time to finish more of those starts and get, get those novels uh, fleshed out, drafted, you know, and, and out there so somebody I can share them with people. But I can't think of it. There's no one in particular that I've, I've not ever explored that I would like to explore is just I'd like to work on some of these that I've already uh, conceptualized. Jeff, where were you born and raised and where did you go to school? Well, um, started out in, in little town in our college town in Mississippi called Starkville. Oh. Uh, my dad was the BSU director there. And from there we went to Illinois and I was there for a couple of years, then a couple of years in Macon, Georgia, and then ended up in Louisiana. And that's mostly where I was raised in Louisiana with the exception of one year that I lived in Iowa. So most of my school years were in Covington, Louisiana, which is a short, just a little bit across the lake from New Orleans. Oh, yeah. I've been to New Orleans once. I'll tell you what, as a place, that really opens you up artistically and creatively. I mean, there's something about it. Yeah. Just, it re- I mean, okay. I remember I spent a week there on vacation. I wrote nine songs in six days when I vacationed there. It just was pouring right out of you, you know? Well, it's, it's very much, it has the reputation for being a real artist colony, Yeah, you know, and many of the famous American writers uh, have spent time in, in New Orleans uh, soaking up that atmosphere. Yeah. What led you to become a writer? Uh, it's like, uh, 
I often tell people that I can't remember when I wasn't writing, and and people kind of look at me funny when I say that. But when I was in in elementary school, or where I used to call grammar school, I was already writing little bits of you know little poems, little rhymes, and little stories. They weren't particularly good, but along the way, I got a lot of encouragement from both of my parents and several of my teachers along the way. Also, uh, encouraged my my very Jeff, whenever I interview an author, I always ask the standard question. When you were growing up, who were your favorite authors? And of those favorite authors, did any of them inspire you to become a writer or perhaps influence your writing style? Well, the most, uh, the, the, <laughs> I've got my tongue tied up. It's okay. Uh, let me ask, the, let me answer the second part of first. I don't think I have any particular writer has influenced my writing style, I don't believe. But my hometown hero was the novelist Walker Percy. Mm -hmm. And he was the guy that won the National Book Award in 1961. And he was a friend of my parents. He was actually in the same writing group that my, my dad was in, in Covington, mm -hmm. Louisiana. Yeah. And so, you know, knowing uh, a nationally uh, reputed author was, was something that, that kind of opened up uh, opened a window or a door, you might say, for me, because I thought, you know, they're not all dead guys that, that you know, were 18th century England or, you know, Robert Frost or someone who's long gone. This is this was a guy that I saw in the grocery store. <laughs> I went to his house. He took us out in his boat. You know, he was a real-life person. Yeah. And he was a, a noted author. So that, that was really a big, a big push. But my favorite books in the, at a very young age were the Bob's Merrill Childhood of Famous Americans series. I don't know if you're familiar with it. No, but that, go ahead anyway. It sounds fascinating. Well, that series is several different authors. And it was a, it was a, they cranked them out like, um, and it was a, a factory uh, yeah. type of a book. But they would take a famous American, like Will Rogers, for example, and they would, they would focus on, what was real life when he was a kid? Mm. And of course, I was a kid when I was reading it. And, and reading about these these inventors, these, these uh, soldiers, these these famous people, uh, some of them were movie stars, some like Will were entertainers and, and journalists. It just it just made me think, wow, they were just a normal kid like me. And yeah. they, they grew up to become, you know, world famous, famous in our country, whatever. It just really was a huge influence. I read every single one of those books I could get my hands on. Jeff, please tell our listeners, where can readers find your books? Well, prior to January of last year, all of my 21 titles were on Amazon. Okay. But in that month last year, the publisher that had 11 of my titles shut its doors, and those titles immediately fell off all of the vendor sites, including Amazon. Ouch. Since then, five of those 11 titles have been re-released through a different publisher. So um, right now, uh, of the 21 titles, I think all but six or seven, I think, are available on uh, on Amazon. Um, and also probably uh, Barnes & Noble. Uh, um, some, of them, some of them are exclusively Amazon, but I, I haven't really understood how all that works with exclusivity. But... All of them are available there. 
Jeff, you mentioned earlier you have like two uh, projects, per, uh, two future releases uh, coming up. What are what are your next book releases, and when can we expect them to come out? Well, um, I'm a little bit curious myself about that because I have one book that's been in the uh, in the uh, in the publisher's in basket now for over a year. It's supposed to be out this very month, Ooh. but I haven't get it yet, so I, um, I don't know exactly what has happened. I think they're just running behind. But that's the one in this new military action series that I was telling you about. Ooh. And that that is volume one in a four-volume series that I've projected. I've already finished writing volume two. It's in its third draft. And uh, when I get its fourth draft, the third draft finished, I'll be sending it to my, my, my beta reader, and I'll be getting the feedback for it, and then, then sending that to the publisher, same publisher. And then volume two is due to come out in December. Jeff, uh, let me know when they come out. I want you on my show again because I'm looking for people, guests for next year, and I'd love to have you on again. In fact, you're welcome anytime, Jeff, okay? Uh, I'd love to come back. Uh, you're, you're always welcome, okay? And I look forward to having you on again. And, Jeff, thank you so much for appearing on the show, and I wish you the best of luck on your future publications. I appreciate that, Matt. Thank you very much. Uh, do we have time to, to go through uh, question number 10, or do, are we already bumping into your, your um, okay. application? Okay, let's let's deal with it. Okay, I, I wanted to ask you, how much input does your do your wife and kids have when, when you write your books? Do they suggest topics or characters' names, or do they help you with editing or research? Well, I love this question because uh, I, although I haven't had much direct input from my kids about my writing, my wife has been a terrific help. Uh, Sometimes we'll, we'll go to breakfast somewhere, and I'll bring along notes for a new story that I've just started, and so I'll give her the overview, and then I'll start asking her questions about it. I'll say, like, uh, what does this character do for a living? You know, what, what kind of house does this character live in? Or, or, you know, what kind of obstacles are in this person's life? And she is just great. She'll just like, just as fast as I can tell the question, she'll come up with an answer for it. Uh -huh. And I've just been sitting there drawing a blank. But a real specific example was in the Ghostess and Mr. Mirror, which I think was one of the ones you mentioned. Yes. Um, or, or she, my wife, helped me decorate that entire hotel suite in typical 1914 fashion. She she knew what it was supposed to look like, what the components of it were, what they were called. <laughs> and, and, you know, I mean... <laughs> It just blew me away because I was, in my mind, it was just a room. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yes. But in her mind, it was a room and it had this kind of furniture and it had this decor and it had this kind of wall covering and these appointments and so on. So she, but in addition to, to those kinds of help, she's also read almost all of my novels in manuscript form after I get them to a readable draft. And she usually has good suggestions to help me uh, with the flow or with the, some kind of a platform or something. So she's, she's been a very important part. Ah, that's fantastic, Jeff. Jeff, you take care, okay? And best regards to you and the family, okay? I appreciate that, Matt. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Take care and God bless you. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen, for next week's show where I will be interviewing hockey author Jeff Kirbyson.